I will put my name on them. The name of God is a powerful thing. If you try to just study it in the Old Testament with your concordance, just take a Bible and some software or something that lets you search the Bible and try to study the name of God, you've got a big task ahead of you. You're not going to get out of Torah very fast. And by the time you get to the New Testament, you're going to be ready to, to move on. It's, it's, a, it's like a doctoral level and beyond kind of study. But those who have spent that time in those details, what they tell us is that the name of God's not just a word. It's who he is, like substantially. Like for you, your name's some external sound that describes you or by which we call you. God's name is substantially internal to him, triune even and mysterious. What that means is that where his name is, he is. There's no distinction. Like I write my name somewhere, I leave, I'm not there anymore. It's not how his name works. And so when he puts his name on you, that's a big deal. When he puts his name on a place, Jerusalem, that's a big deal too. When he takes his name away from a place, Jerusalem, oh, that's a really big deal. Happened twice. Huh? When he takes his name away from you, does he do that? Well, the answer is no. God does not take his name away from individuals until they have already cast it aside. Now, what the argument in Galatians chapter 3 is going to be about today is how you can do that really fast. It's the argument between Christianity and all other religions. It's the same point. It's the argument between Lutheranism and Roman Catholicism, Presbyterianism and Roman Catholicism, Presbyterianism and Arminianism, Lutheranism and Arminianism, not Lutheranism and Presbyterianism. Are you tired of the isms yet? It's all a fight about how you are seen by God and how you see how you are seen by God. And what was happening in Galatia, this region that isn't even a city, there's multiple congregations that would have been involved in like a foothill Greco backroads in this space where Christians are coming to faith that he has risen and that you are paid for, and that makes you immortal now, and he won't be long anyway, there came some from down in Jerusalem who were Jewish by blood, Hebrews, heirs according to the history. And they began to teach in this little congregation that these Gentiles, these non-Jews, non-Semites, along with baptism, the Lord's Supper, Jesus being risen, alleluia, also needed to be circumcised to be saved. That's why, if you want to talk about what the Bible says, if you want to talk about what God says, the actual God who made you, if you want to know how he plans to save you, you have to at some point understand the ritual of circumcision. Because that's what he chose. You don't get to decide the symbols he leaves you to follow. Thankfully, I'm really, thankfully, baptism is the one in this era that we're in. It's the fulfillment of circumcision, and you can see this in Colossians 2 as clear as day. It says it. It, it surpasses circumcision. It, it goes further. Circumcision is outward only. Baptism is of the heart. But that doesn't mean that circumcision wasn't a promise in the Old Testament for the people of God with a particular sign. Namely, the male needed to bleed in a particularly painful and changing way that then would be evident to his wife to his parents, 
And it would make his son distinct from everybody else's. Not that you paraded around, but you would all know that you're different. Now, again, baptism is the New Testament version of this. Although I would contend that most people who are baptized today do not know that they are different, nor act like it, nor recognize the power of it, because they do not recognize the power of the name of God. They think the name of God is just a thing. They think it's a toy or a word, something you might pray to once in a while, as opposed to himself in the present claiming you as his own, nailing you to the cross in Jesus with him so that you can walk out of the tomb with him, certain and confident. Which is why, again, after you have that promise, that adoption as an heir and a son of God, why, if someone were to come along and say, that's insufficient, you need more. You need to do more of this in order to really have God love you. Well, just like that, you're at this thing. I've talked about it for years. Moralism. Do this. Do this. Do this. You know what that means? That means your salvation's never done. The best Roman Catholics I know, the ones who believe it, if you ask them if they're saved, they'll say, I hope so. Because they know what their church teaches. Most don't. You never have to say that, Christian and Roman Catholic, if you love your Bible. Because baptism is the answer, yeah. Jesus saved me. He said so. Why would I doubt him? Oh, did I sin? Well, he likes repentance. He thinks it's a cool thing. So that's not a reason. Is it because water cannot do such great things? Are we really going to need to even talk about that anymore? That's such an old idea for people who don't understand that the world has unseen events in it. If you don't know the world has an unseen limit and edge to it, I mean, this year really should have woken you up to that. There's dark powers fighting in our city, for our city, to destroy it. Demons darknesses, principalities. I don't want to call them by name nor even know them by name, but they're there. I know that because of what goes on in that city. The violence that has continued to increase with cities across the country based on policies that we've been put beneath. It's not going to stop. And we don't need to go in and fight with our hands. But we have to remember the power of the name of God. And that the name that is on your head and your heart to claim you as one distinct from the world bids you, hey, I'm the almighty high king of the universe. What do you need? Let me know. Detail it if you have to. I, I got a line on him, Vito. I can handle it. This city needs our warfare. This world needs our warfare. Our warfare is not to do anything but to wait upon the name of Jesus Christ and to believe everything that he has said to be so ultimately true that the storms will rise and crush, the fires will burn, and we will be standing on the other side. And if it's not temporally eye to eye, you and me, it'll be until we meet again on the last day for sure. So when Paul opens the letter to the Galatians, talking about how this party of the circumcision is a trouble, a problem. Unlike every other letter that he writes in which he goes along and says, well, you're all basically still Christians. We just have to work through this. He says, what is going on? I mean, that sounds so pious, even the way I say it. I, to say it movie style, I can't say it in the pulpit. He was infuriated. He's telling them they're going to be damned. And then he goes at pains to describe a situation which is theoretical. You have to think about this. Which is that? 
before Jesus, God was saving the world in the Jewish people through one particular revelation of the law that was narrow but had congealed all previous revelations, Noah, Adam, all that kind of stuff, into one thing, Abraham, and then David. But now, on the other side of this reality, of this shrinking down to one in Jesus, now it is exploded to all. So what does that mean? It means that in Noah's day, there was nobody who didn't have a chance to be a Christian. It means that in Abraham's day, there was no one who didn't have a chance to be a Christian. That this word has gone out to the ends of the earth, and the history of man is men rejecting it and rejecting it because men love the darkness, opening to the Gospel of John. Again, so Paul says in Galatians then, this doing this through two ways, bringing it down to one man in Jesus and then out again into the world, that this is Old Testament, New Testament history. So the Old Testament was about keeping it tight until Jesus could be born. And that is what the law as a guardian that held them captive, verse 23, was doing. Okay, So all of that was lead up to this really complex opening section of the text. The law was holding us captive. What does he mean? He means that in the Old Testament, Torah and the histories and the prophets, they pulled a people together until one of them could be born, whom they would kill, who would not stay dead. And that was the entire purpose of all of those scriptures. Now, they do more than that. When you look back at them, they give you good morals, they're great stories, there's a bunch of other stuff. But in time, they held the people together by word and deed in various ways until Jesus was born under this, this law. Now, what happens also that gets confusing is he uses this word law in two ways, and he means both of them some of the time. And our Lutheran distinction of law and gospel can get muddled up in this. But I would encourage you not to hear him saying that he, we were held captive under the law as the church in a law gospel sense. Here, it's more like this, that as you are aware as a human being, in history, whoever you are, a person though, you grow up and you see this and you learn this and it's different than everybody else. There is a certain level of law, of moral code that is built into creation, which holds you captive, preventing you from doing too much evil until you come of age and become a Christian and learn how to do it for yourself. Now, different civilizations have different levels of this and this is when God destroys a civilization. When the civilization can no longer restrain the evil people, but instead encourages them, God replaces them with a different civilization that can restrain the evil people. That is, he puts them back under the captivity of the law, martial law, you might say. But all of that, the growth of your own heart, the struggle against being free from the law and alive in the gospel of grace, well, if you really want to understand that, forget arguing about proper distinctions and get into the text about how the Old Testament and the New Testament are fulfilled in one thing. This man on the cross. And then here, as Paul says to you, that baptism is that thing now where he goes on to say, right? So the law is our guardian until Christ came so we might be justified by faith, that is, by Christ's work. But now that Christ has come, faith has come, verse 25, we're no longer under a guardian. That is the old wineskins of the Old Testament code, the temple, the priesthood. All of that's no longer needed. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. It's the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Then in the New Testament era, the sons and daughters of all people would be made prophets. By that, he doesn't mean you're going to be able to see the future and tell the future by magic. 
What he does mean is you have full access to the word of God, full ability to comprehend it, and full ability to call your world to account on its truth. Your prophets, if you want to be. You've got to study the Bible to be one. You've got to be able to say the Bible out loud to be one. You do it every time you confess the creed. You are no longer under a guardian. You are a son of God through faith. And now here he makes this claim that we're going to spend most of the day not talking about what baptism is, and instead the resulting text here and how our world has destroyed itself with some of these ideas misunderstood. But don't miss it. I just, on my show yesterday, Saturday morning, there was a question, two questions about baptism. And one of them was along the lines of how do I argue against uh, the baptism of babies or, or how would I teach that baptism does more than is just a symbol. And I've spent enough time with various people, whether it's classrooms, whether it's uh, podcasts, and whether it's videos, and whether it's talking to you now, and I can take you through every single verse in the Bible that mentions baptism, and I can show you how it says very clearly either you're forgiven, or the Holy Spirit is given to you, or you're resurrected from the dead. That's always in the context. But rather than do that, what you should do is go get all the texts that say baptism, write them all down on one piece of paper, and stare at it for a week. Because I can say it till I'm blue in the face, it doesn't matter. What matters is whether or not you see it. When someone comes and says we shouldn't baptize babies, it means they don't really read their Bible. They read it all the time, and they never pay attention to it. Not when it says stuff about baptism, they just skip it. They go right past it. They might get all the stuff about how you should be good. The law, again, back to that idea. Now, don't get me wrong. Baptists are Christians. But they're Christians without confidence. Or Christians who must have a fleshly confidence. Because they must build it on their own works. Rather than on their identity as a son. Now, that's where we're going to go now. This is where the, the real juice ultimately is in this text. So to be baptized into Christ is to put on Christ. What does it mean to put on Christ? It means that you're a son. So that verse 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek now, neither slave nor free now, neither male nor female now. All are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. Again, concluding the idea he set up, that there is no division between the old covenant people and the new covenant people in terms of in Jesus. We have external things that are different, but Christ has bridged them and made us one together. And so New Testament believers have Father Abraham as their father. And Old Testament believers have St. Paul as their apostle, even if they never lived to see him. They're part of the same trajectory. But now in making this glorious promise that this truth is so real, this kingdom is so complete that no human being can be left out of it, and that nobody needs to add anything to it, that Christ has done it all. No more do this. It is done. To make that point, He's had to destroy all distinctions between us in his, uh, well, in his argument. So he says there's neither Jew nor Greek because he wants Christians to believe that your race, your ethnicity, your tribe does not matter when it comes to your faith. But does that mean that there are no Jews? I mean, I'm pretty sure if the Holocaust is what everyone believes it is, that there are Jews, right? We can make that argument and it's still true. Or is that racist? I'm not sure these days. But the fact is, Jews are different than non-Jews. And the phrase Gentiles is the word Jews made up for calling all non-Jews less than themselves. It's in my Bible. I can't help it. It's just what's there. It's what they did. Do they still do it? I'm not a Jew. I wouldn't know. 
But I know that while in the church, that is at the supper and in baptism and in the world to come, all distinctions will be swept away. I know they're still here under my feet. And if I pretend that they're not, well, I think I'm going to miss what God has told me to do for the people that are still here. Because him telling us there is neither Jew nor Greek is not meant to tell us, therefore, there is no civilization or culture or history or art or beauty. Should all the Jews stop having their Hanukkah services when they become Christians? I don't think so. Should all the Germans stop singing Silent Night on Christmas Eve? I don't think so. There are good things about culture. There are good things about ethnicity. There are good things about being different. And there are good things about sharing that. Cultural appropriation, even. It says there's neither slave nor free, and yet we have an entire book in the Bible devoted to talking to a runaway slave and his master about how the right thing to do, if they have to be legal, is for him to remain a slave. But how the right thing to do, if you really understand how things work, is to set him free. Because slavery clearly is not how man was meant to be, except for the fact, as we sang in the song this morning, we were all built to be slaves of God forever. That was our first making. And it was the greatest thing ever. And now we're like, wow, that sounds bad. <laughs> Which shows you how bad we are. But I'm not going to try to redeem the word slavery this morning, particularly. Servitude and mastery are just as present today as ever. You know, you don't get to decide what you want to do when you go to someone else's authority, whether they pay you to be there or not. And so that hasn't disappeared. I remember hearing once a story about a lady who got pulled over by a cop. And then she just, she, she waved at him and said, I'm a Christian. You can't pull me over. I have a different king. And she drove off and ended up in jail without a car. <laughs> because that's how it works, right? You're, you're his son, but he, and he's here with you in your mouth. And he's managing all this stuff, but he hasn't given you the authority to overturn the orders here. So just because you ladies are going to achieve sonship and heirship in the world to come, doesn't mean you're not ladies. And guys, just because your ladies are not going to be your wives, certainly not in the same way in the life of the world to come, doesn't mean that you don't have to be the best husband you can be now. And that the difference between these things, as the Bible describes it, is real. It's not similar. Whereas, well, we're two different kinds of human. And everything about science shows us this. It's only a mythology of the present age that has convinced us otherwise. And as I've said before, and I'll say again, I'm pretty convinced this is as an attack against the idea of fatherhood. Because God is our father, and the devil hates that. And so he wants to get rid of that idea. And you can kind of see it in our pop culture, our pop civilization. And even going back 200, 300 years, the move toward, first, equality. But it was always not an equality of value, it was always a tearing down of distinction. And while certainly, have evil men abused distinctions? Have evil men abused practices like mastery? Yes, of course they have. Does that give Christians the right to not believe God made these things? No. No. And so at the end of the day, when it says there is neither male nor female, what this means is we baptize everybody and we commune everybody and we believe everybody can be saved and men should marry women and women should marry men because male and female are still God's creation. But this text is the text 
that's been used by every church that doesn't think that to teach other than that, well, for 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 years now. Here in the LCMS, we still do not have lady pastors, but if you think the battle's over, don't sleep on it. There's still people fighting for it with this text. There's neither male nor female. Of course we should ordain women. Why can't we have a woman be president of the congregation? Why don't we have women on the elder board? Why don't we let women vote? That's how that got in, by the way. Not that I want to get rid of your votes, ladies. I actually don't care. I'm not sure voting is a good idea. All it does is make us fight. <laughs> so I don't know. But, but the point being, again, let me put it in a different, different paradigm. If you're on a ship and you're sailing and people are like, we don't need this. We're going to throw it overboard. You're like, I don't know. They throw it overboard. Oh, there it went. And the ship starts to sink. And you find they're not only throwing stuff overboard, they're drilling holes in the ship. And what do you do? Now, what I would do is I would try to patch the holes and put stuff back, try to put it back the way it was, okay? Now, I can tell you over the last 100 years, the LCMS has systematically had certain things removed. Over that same 100 years, we have also watched ourselves systematically decline and lose our children. And I'm not saying that a cause and correlation are two completely different things. You know what I mean? Like what made something happen and that it happened at the same time are not the same thing. But if you're taking, what, seven, I, I wrote them out once, I don't remember what they all are, but you know, about seven to 12 things that we've removed as a body, as a group, slowly, by osmosis over time, if you kind of just look at them, it's fascinating. I mean, kneelers, what an interesting thing. Every LCMS church used to have a little thing in front of you called a kneeler that you'd pull out. And when you'd confess your sins, you'd kneel. And when you would uh, uh, pray, you would kneel. I know we had them somewhere at St. Paul. I think it was the old site. This building probably never did have them. It's too new. But I mean, really, just, just put this one through your, how did we get there? I know how we got there. We wanted to be comfortable, and we have people who can't kneel. And so we wanted them to be comfortable. And so we did truth by exception. <laughs> Bad idea. And we took out these kneelers. But what did we do then? We all decided we would not kneel before God anymore. All together. Ah, it doesn't matter. He won't mind. Okay, fine. But where are we now? And that's just one of them. Voting would be, well, that's another one. I'm not saying we got to take it out. It's like, how bad does it have to get before we start asking, what did we change? And then it got bad and start looking at that and at least honestly assessing whether or not we got to put some of it back. Now, again, if you're worried about the voting, uh, I have no intention of trying to get anything to change in that constitution without you guys taking full charge of the entire thing. But I know this, that if we cannot learn to talk to each other as men and women who are different than each other, recognizing that men are different and women are different and we talk different, we should treat each other different in public, well, then we're not going to have much luck with our kids because our kids have to be treated different than each other. Um, uh, I don't like this story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. I got five kids. Um, I had three girls first. You guys all know most of this, right? And the boy came along. And I... I always thought being a parent was pretty easy. Girls, they're great. I liked them. I wanted boys, but they weren't coming. Um, and the boy came along. I've been pretty proud of him ever since uh, in the sense of I, uh, I don't know, he doesn't even know this. Like the day he came out, his name was splashed across the internet on one of my videos and all this stuff. But um, I assumed it would be kind of the same path. And then I realized uh, pretty quickly he was different and no, not faster, but sort of, 
slower in other ways, definitely bumpier, right? Like ran into things more, liked it, all that. Um, but it wasn't until this year then that something really started to, to become apparent to me in the house, which is that while the girls were progressing marvelously in their maturity, he just kept running into things and not listening and getting worse. And I realized something. I realized I'd been cheating as a parent. Not really. I've been doing what was natural. I've been letting the mother mature the women. That makes sense. I had to put it through my head like physically, I need to mature the boy. I got to walk him through hormones and hair and body strength and all that kind of stuff. She's not going to do that. If I don't teach him how to think, she's not going to do that. She'll try, but she won't be able to. Why? Because she's not a man. A woman cannot make a boy into a man. A man must do that. So This is where, again, recapturing our distinction as people goes to the very heart of who we are as people. And either we recognize that God made us two kinds of valuable unity in humanity, and that that's good enough to overcome whatever lies they're telling us these days about whatever, or we don't. Now, again, I, I'm here and you're here. I think because we love the Bible and we would rather be grumpy underneath the Bible and say, I, I, yes, Lord, if you say so, uh, then go out with the world into darkness. Huh? That's where I'm at. It's never been an easy journey for me to, to have my mind bent. What I just told you is an embarrassment to me. I should have spent many more years focused on my son. I only realize it now. I'm late. Like, ah, it makes me angry at myself. But here's the thing. Jesus knows that. Jesus knew that. Jesus even planned it all so I could talk to you about it today to help you where you are. And he's doing that all the time with all of this stuff. He's been in every single corner back into our mutual growth, into our belief that his supper, which is his flesh and blood, is sufficient to cover all our inadequacies, to bury those cracks beneath his resurrection, and to bind us as a people to take one more step through this age of darkness on a journey toward a kingdom that we know is coming. And as we go, we attend to the scriptures to find out where we have gone astray and where we need to repent. And if we don't think we need to repent over man and woman in this age, I don't know about We have to. And we have to do it gently and with recognition that all of us are listening to stories. Those stories tell us things. Our task first is to cut off the stories we don't want to trust and divert our attention to the stories we know that we can and then talk with each other. Remembering all that mercy triumphs over justice every time. And that growth comes through pivoting, repentance, crashing, rising again. Well, this is the life. Huh? This is the life. I feel like I could and should have said more on this topic. That there is neither male nor female. And how that means that in Christ all are one. But it does not mean that Ephesians 5 and First uh, Peter chapter 3. And all the other texts about man and woman don't exist. The scriptures need to be taken as a whole body, just like the church of Christ is a whole body, just like Christ is the whole God in one body. You can't chop it up and pull pieces out. You've got to be living in it, imbibing it, eating it, inwardly digesting it. In that then, with the few minutes that we have remaining, I want to shift gears a little bit this morning and give you something else, a bit of a challenge for the new year. Um... I, if, you, if you haven't heard me talk about this elsewhere, I feel like a broken record at this point because I've said it enough times. Like I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of New Year's. I never have been. And 
it was like 2001, something like that. I made a New Year's resolution to never again make a New Year's resolution, and I kept it. I have not since, and it's felt pretty good. I mean, you can laugh or not laugh. I, I, I kept it, <laughs> and it was more, more than a lot of people do. The reason I did, I did that, and I don't like New Year's resolutions, is because they don't work. Just making a decision, it just, it just doesn't work. It's not the way we are as people. So every year, everyone gets their hopes up about this thing, and oh, it's going to be better. So nothing changed. The moon didn't even really shift that much. Uh, it's just it's just the bank calendar shifted, and we got to deal with that. I mean, it's not going to go away. But to have something that isn't just I hope maybe, but instead is I hope for certain. So if you really want to make a New Year's resolution this year, I got one for you. Say Psalm 23 once a day to yourself in the mirror, putting yourself in for all the pronouns. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside fresh waters. He has redeemed my breath. I want to talk about that psalm to you this morning to send you on your way. It's one of several I say every morning. Um, I've been working on this for a while, and it was a bit of an accident. But I can really tell you, um, I'm so thankful for stumbling into this idea. It was during the lockdown, I think, or shortly thereafter. And I was thinking about prayer in general. And I, I realized that to just open the Bible and read a psalm out loud, even if I don't understand it, is going to make the angels happy, is going to make the devils unhappy. And that way is better than magic. It's like a powerful wall to build around your mind. When I realized that, I started trying to build a lot of these walls, and they're phenomenal. The more you get, the better they are. The Sons of Solomon prayers that we just went through in Advent, that's trying to get this as an idea to be adopted by any man anywhere who can do it. And right now, we've got was over 10, 14 countries of individual men signed up to start Sons of Solomon chapters. All these guys are going to do is pray a series of psalms every day, carry a Bible where they go, and have a crucifix with them, take a prayer book. And what's amazing is there's small groups all over the, the world right now praying these psalms together every day because we believe that we can't change the world, but Jesus will. And these words are the way he'll do it. It's been phenomenal to watch that take off and happen, encouraging to me. But Psalm 23 is not in those psalms. It's part of a series of three that I say to end my morning every day. And it's the last one I say. I listen to music, the same music every time. It's like a liturgy. And by the time I get to this point, I'm yelling because I'm so happy, because the words have changed me. Because when you really believe that the Lord is your shepherd and you shall not want because of that, it puts you in a bit of a conscientious crisis. The Lord, Jesus Christ is my shepherd. I shall not, but I do. I shall not want, but I do. All I do is want. All I do is covet. How shall I not want? And Jesus looks down at me and says, your want, Jonathan, is just a story you're telling yourself right now. The fact is I've bought you with the price of my own blood and you shall not want. The only reason you're wanting now is to waste your own time. But the fact is you shall not want. And that will continue to be a truth that will grow until one day you won't even know what want is anymore. 
And the only thing between you and then is you not believing it now. If you would just believe that every catastrophe that comes your way is a blessing from God, because the Bible says it is, well, then you would not have a problem. You'd walk through it, realizing it was something you're supposed to go through. The pain would be there, the anger would be there, but the Spirit of God saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, would also be there. But you've got to say it during the good times, if you want it there during the bad times. The fact is, Jesus Christ is your shepherd, and you're not going to want, that's his promise, to walk you to that position. To help you see that you are in green pastures and beside fresh waters, even if you don't think so. Because of the fact that he has already redeemed your soul. I don't like the word soul. I like the word defesh. as uh, the Hebrew. Soul is uh, a translation of the Greek suke, which is way better than soul even. But soul, the problem with the word is there's no body involved in your soul, right? Like the soul is the opposite of your body. They're two different things. Uh, nefesh, Hebrew word, it literally means breather. So that's what we are. It describes us body and soul, really. And I love it as a description of us because it, it takes our material and our spiritual and it presses them together in a very real way. Because you can take a deep breath and squeeze it to your head and you can feel your mind and your feelings change with it. Taking deep breaths is very good for you. It shows you that you are not just a body, And you are not just a soul. You're a breather. You're a spirit within organic flesh. And God has redeemed your breather. So that, yea, though you walk through this valley of the shadow of death, you can see. You can see. You can see the grass is not as it should be, but you can also know it's good enough. You can see the water is not as it should be. You can also know it's good enough. You can see your walk is not as it should be. You can also know that your shepherd is the one whose voice you are following. And he has redeemed your breath so that, yea, though you walk through the valley of shadow of death, you shall fear no evil because he is with you, because his rod and his staff are a comfort to you. Now, I picked this up from somebody um, I want to say it it goes with one of the old East Coast confessions of sins, where they would say, by my own fault, by my own, by my fault, by my own fault, by my own most grievous fault. If you've never heard that, well, it never got into the Lutheran hymnal we use right now, but it's in the LCMS in some places. By my own fault, sorry, by my fault, by my own fault, by my own most grievous fault. And when... People say that in places where they say it, they beat their chest. By my fault, by my own fault, by my own most grievous fault. Just as a means of remembering. Well, I don't do that. But I do that when I say his rod and his staff, they have become a comfort to me. Because I want to remember that even pain is Jesus' gift. I want to remember that even tragedy is Jesus' gift. And I want to remember it before it comes. So that when it does come, I am mentally prepared to believe on my Lord. I wish I'd brought this proverb with me this morning. It's sitting back uh, at my prayer station uh, at home. But it says that, here it is. It's like a city with broken walls is a man who does not guard his psyche. Guard your psyche with the words of Psalm 23. Now, 
You shall not want because his rod and his staff, the pain that you are put under now, are his discipline to drive you to a better place. And if you believe that story, you will have the grit and the courage to walk through anything. His rod and his staff are a comfort to you because you can see how he prepares before you in the presence of your enemies a table on which your cup runneth over. Let me say that again. He prepares before you in the presence of your enemies a table on which your cup runneth over. Not only has he given you a life which, generally speaking, will be pretty good on and off until you die. Everyone gets that more or less unless they try not to. Mostly. He's also given you far greater than any temporal promises about a good life. The sacrament of the altar on which his table, his cup, in which his own shed blood overflows through the life of the world is now going to come out from the darkness of the past, the cloudy murkiness of the temple, and enter as bright shining light into you. Again, rod, staff, comfort. Because you can see how the table prepared before you is going to overflow for all eternity. And even your enemies, the sin of this world, the lies of this world, the devil and your flesh, they cannot stop what he is promising to give you in removing your wants through unity with his flesh and blood. So that it remains a certainty. Goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life. It's the best part. It's the best part when you get to this part. So that it remains a certainty. Steadfast loving kindness and faithfulness are going to follow you like dogs chasing you down a pathway all the days of your life, hounding you back into goodness. Why? Because you dwell in the body of Jesus. Because you're baptized. Because he doesn't stop. And until you have shut yourself in a corner and plugged your ears and cursed him out, he's not going to stop making you free. The Lord is your shepherd. You shall not want. He will make you to lie down in green pastures. He will lead you beside fresh waters. He has begun by redeeming your mouth. So that, yea, though you walk through this valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil because he is with you. And his rod and his staff, they shall become a comfort to you. So that you will see how he does prepare before you in the presence of your enemies a table on which your cup runneth over. And therefore it remains a certainty that goodness and mercy, steadfast loving kindness and faithfulness are going to follow you all the days of your life simply because you dwell in the body of Joshua Christus, Jesus of Nazareth the Christ. Age unto age, aeon unto aeon, forever and ever. Amen.